1: Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. How are you? I'm doing really well, and you know I am, because we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, and that's books. I
0: know that's your favorite topic, because you also like reading books.
1: So here, let me ask
0: you something about books. And so let me frame it this way. Would you want a school filling your child's head with junk?
1: You're asking that question pretty interesting in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. Of course, I wouldn't want any school filling my child's head with a bunch of junk, trash, concepts that are false. Of course not. So what's
0: junk and what's substance? And who gets to decide that? And where and when do your kids get exposed to certain materials? So you know, we've both been following the news that there's been an uptick in book banning, right? And so we've seen things removed about the Holocaust. Many books have been removed to some tales from public libraries. So some things that we've been reading for hundreds of years are being removed from the library. And mainly this is from grassroots organizations, right? Uh, sometimes parents, they put pressure against the school and the government to control what children have access to. I mean, this is a growing phenomenon right now. And it's 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 really scary, Amy.
1: I agree. I know whenever I taught eighth grade several years ago, I was introduced to this Banned Books Week concept Mm -hmm. through a podcast I was listening to. And it was amazing to me, uh, interesting, that there was such a thing as banned books.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So what I did was create a unit for my eighth graders to explore censorship. And at first they really question that they like well well, what can we do about it we don't really have free speech they were also curious as to why they were learning so much social studies in my class with the connection to the bill of rights that they were studying in social studies so that's Mm -hmm. um, was uh, a way to tie in the different content areas but there really was a connection to these eighth grade students because it affected who they had access to and the types of books and materials that they could read and in a lot of ways see themselves represented. So it took me on a journey to explore that in more detail. Like how does it affect us to have books that are questioned or censored And a lot of times it is a self-censorship where the classroom teacher might say to say to themselves, well, I teach a younger grade. So I think it's more appropriate for these materials to be in an an older grade level classroom, Uh eighth grade, high school. So that happens. And that might be also the case with the librarians. Uh But there is a difference, and I want to talk to our guest today about what kinds of censorship might be happening in the classroom and where it fits, when it's necessary, is it necessary, and how. So, what are your thoughts on that? So, there's
0: many thoughts. The first thing is, it's the control of expression, right? And there are some things that I want introduced because it broadens the conversation. I want the exposure. We want to have dialogue as part of my community. I want to read about the things that impact me that so that I'm seen. There's things that are now considered critical race theory that now get into culturally responsive teaching. So where is, where is that line? And we have... LGBT communities, right? And book banning excludes any discussion of such. Not only does it exclude any books, but it also excludes clubs of your of being able to join a club. So there's a far reach. So it's, it's, it's something we definitely should follow. I'm not going to go all the way and say, oh, book banning is bad. I think it should have its limits. I think why it's done to control the narrative and to hinder what teachers can even discuss in a very broad way so that you could have some Socratic conversations. I think that's how students grow.
1: Absolutely. And we're going to talk to Camille Auguste who was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. She did, devoted her life to developing critically conscious students via culturally responsive anti-racist teaching and coaching. Camille draws upon her experiences as a product of Chicago public schools to fuel her passion of disrupting and agitating systems of inequalities. Her passion stems from her experiences in an inner city school system, which she feels neglected to prepare her to confront the brutal facts about life as a black woman in America. In her quest to leave an imprint, Camille is inspired by the works and philosophies of revolutionary individuals, such as James Baldwin, Frere, Muhammad, Shakur, Ladson Billings, Muhammad Ali, Bettina Love, just to name a few. So welcome to our podcast. I <laughs> the story of our remote teaching and learning lives, isn't it? Yes, we are so
0: excited for you to join us today. It's such a beautiful day. And before you came on, Dr. Amy and I, we were talking about book banning in this form of censorship. And we talked about when it occurs with private individuals. Now we're really talking about it with government officials and organizations to remove books from the libraries, the school reading list, just from our bookshelves. And we talked about things that are classic. We're talking about things about the Holocaust. Just last year, 300 books were banned. And now we have this huge uptick to ban even more books. And so so these grassroots organizations are saying, we're, we want to ban things that are graphic violence, right? Expression of disrespect for parents, sexually explicit, something that exalts evil or lacks merit. But teachers feel very differently. One of my favorite books growing up was Of Mice and Men. And one of the books that I can remember from my freshman year in high school, that book will be banned. So we see this in the education feels a little shaky, right? And Mm -hmm. it's an ever-changing curriculum. We fear that teachers are being censored, that our teaching is being monitored, what we can and what we can't, can't do being able to have these discussions and these very rich Socratic discussions in classroom. Camille, in your opinion, what are the implications with the lack of choice in books from an educator's perspective? What are these implications?
2: Yeah, thank you, Dr. Joy. I think what comes to mind for me immediately is just the need for students to read texts that sort of allow them to see themselves in the text and also that allow them to dream beyond the world and the environment in which they live. I truly believe in, as an educator, having a diverse classroom library, you know, and, and not just having a diverse classroom library, but also just building relationships with students in a sense where I can refer them to a movie or refer them to a text that they might need at any moment. So I think that banning books and censorship is, is harmful for our identity. I think that oftentimes students are asked to sort of shed pieces of who they are outside of the school and being told what you can or can't read or, you know, not being given the option to choose how, what, which narrative you want to align yourself to or which narrative you want to explore more. It, it, it's detrimental to, I feel like, just having that, that sense of self, like text as mirrors and windows is something that we're taught. In education, like when we're when we're studying to become teachers, we talk about how we have to include like texts where students can see themselves and texts where students feel, you know, that their cultural backgrounds are being welcomed into the classroom. And just I, I think that we're getting away from that with the book banning and the censorship. And what does this mean for students as they're growing into people who are supposed to navigate society? You know, I, I think the text can be a great and text is not just book, text can be movies, text can be anything that we're asking students to sort of like analyze and look at and understand from the perspective of like speaker, audience and and stuff like that. So with without Of Mice and Men and certain literature,
1: I just, I don't see, what are we
2: gonna replace it with?
1: Tell us a little bit about who your students are and who you are in the classroom. I would like to build a context here for my next question. Okay. So
2: right now I am preparing teacher candidates, individuals who are studying to get their teacher certificate, and I'm currently supervising them while they're doing their student teaching. And my students, they're, they're placed all throughout the city. They're placed in, you know, the surrounding suburbs of the city. And I consider, you know, my students to be not just those who are studying to become educators, but also their students, you know, those who I'm trying to help prepare them for. And I, I think right now, like what a lot of my students are asking me about as far as teacher preparation goes, it's just like, how do we have these conversations with our, you know, younger students in the classroom when we become teachers? Like, how do we talk about issues of race? Or how do we talk about issues of abandonment and neglect? Or how do we talk about like lust and love? You know, because those are all natural emotions. And and in some instances and a lot of instances, especially in the city, those are natural occurrences in students' lives. And to my point earlier, to ask them to sort of forget about the life that they're living outside of the classroom is, is neglect. So when you ask me, like, who are my students, my students are essentially individuals in the city of Chicago and around surrounding areas who are looking to just create an impact by alleviating some of the inequities that we see in schools. And they're asking questions
0: like, how do we navigate these conversations? Amy, before you ask your next question, I wanted to respond the same way that you asked Camille before I started teaching, I had a very narrow view in terms of diversity. And actually, one of my views with ELL students, I had the strong feeling of why do they get to do this? Why do they get to learn two languages? My children won't be able to learn two languages unless I pay for it. And I have these views. But here's what people—I don't think people understand about teachers. When you are a teacher, When you are exposed or any profession where you are exposed to a diverse body of people, you come out of that ignorance, you come out of that narrow perspective. And all I wanted for my students who were all non-English speaking students was to be happy, to be healthy, to be respected, to be seen, and to grow. That's what I wanted for them because not knowing them and knowing them made all the difference. So I think going from that narrow perspective to now this broad perspective and actually getting to know diverse groups of people makes a huge
1: difference. I agree. So I want to go further with this representation of diversity in your classrooms. How do you select books to help represent the students in your classroom? And what books have been the most difficult to find? Well,
2: I think something that a lot of educators can consider that we sometimes don't is like just creating the space in the classroom for students to be able to read, you know? Like not necessarily saying, here's a book that I want you to read or here's something that I want you to look at, but just saying like, hey, I'm gonna give you all 30, 45 minutes. You can read whatever you want to read. I, I think that it's important to create the space and facilitate the environment that would lead your students to the sort of self-discovery and the independent actions that you want them to take. And I think it's it's really hard for me to choose books for students that I don't build relationships with. To uh, Dr. Joy's point of like understanding who they are as individuals and that there are intersectionalities to their identities. You know, like a student may physically appear to align with one race that based on like their phenotype and their physical appearance, but that doesn't mean that, you know, the home that they live in or, you know, the family that they come from aligns to whatever ideas we have about the way certain groups of people look, act or behave. You know, I think culture in itself is something that we live and breathe and act upon each day. it's not just like okay i'm I'm gonna talk to my students about this this war story of a child in Africa because of its culture. so I think we have to be careful when we're like steering our students to the direction of text based on what we think we know about them and we truly have to just understand that like their identities are are intersectional just, just because they look a certain way or because they speak a certain way, you know, to Dr. Joy's point earlier, there's so much more behind who they are. And for me, it's it's best when I just take the time to prioritize those little nuances about them as individuals, as opposed to trying to figure out what what categories I want to put them in or which, which labels best align to what I've seen from them. So creating the space where students feel like they can be themselves and then just Having like an open heart and a listening ear to different things that may be revealed in that process, I think it's really important to like hone in on classroom culture so that students can be themselves and feel welcomed. And then you can sort of build your classroom library and build your curriculum from there. That, that's really what I feel like, you know, we should prioritize as educators.
0: Right. And, you know, in this whole book banning, it really feels like an effort to really control the narrative, right? So my, my background is science. And through grade school, high school, college, even when I was a, a science major, I didn't see science book with women. Probably can't, couldn't have named one woman scientist during that period of time. And fortunately that has gotten better, right? Where you now see women represented in science book, women of color, even children, not enough still But when I was studying science, it was all men. And so before my teaching days, I was a research microscopist. And all the women, all the research microscopists were women. And all the research PhDs were men. Mm. And so it was at that time where I said I wanted to get my PhD. And that organization did not support me. And that's when I went into education because they were not trying to support a woman. And so our books, they control that narrative, right? I don't see anyone that looks like me. So how can I become that? And, you know, so this is is really disturbing in many ways. And so what's occurring in the U.S. now? what, What do you think? What are your thoughts about what's initiating all of this new book banning book banning that we have not seen in about 75 years what are your thoughts about this huge push now for book banning
2: immediately i think that we're sort of facing this turning point in his, the history of our country you know i i think with the pandemic and a lot of the unrest that took place while we were all working and going to school from home and quarantining, you know, a lot of that was. Right. And paying attention. <laughs> a lot of that was fed to us through the media and I've, I've coming out of the pandemic. I feel that people have this like new sense or reignited sense of social justice. And there, there are some of us clearly run opposite ends of, you know, what, What our sense of social justice looks like. And I think that book banning is a result of us being in that phase of trying to reconcile a lot of things that came out during the pandemic. And when I say a lot of things, I'm referring directly to, you know, like George Floyd and monumental, now monumental rulings in court cases. So a lot of historical events took place in like the last two years. I don't know if people are reflecting on the fact of like, we're living in historical moments. And I, I feel the book banning is, is sort of aligned to that. And it's coming, I think, out of fear, fear of not having the language to facilitate students connections between what they're seeing on TV, and what you're trying to tell me in the classroom, which don't necessarily always align. But now that you know, I'm a student who spent so much time on the internet, so much time watching the news and absorbing all this, I have all these questions. And I think instead of like embracing the questions and instead of bridging gaps and facilitating connections, we're shutting them down before you know we could even be open to it. And the the young people today, and I I know I'm a young person, but I I think that the students of today are are so desperately demanding more from, from their parents, from their teachers, from a lot of the systems that have just historically and
1: and systematically failed people of color. There's a lot that happens when books are challenged or banned. And there's always been some challenges to books, especially ones that push into some uncomfortable spaces or non-traditional spaces. I don't even know what traditional spaces are now because we're starting to recognize we are, as you said, multiple identities. We don't fit in boxes. Yeah. And books are more representative now than they've ever been before. But when they're challenged, when they're banned, it becomes this huge, a huge issue in what is being controlled. How do you talk to your students, your pre-service candidates about these issues and help them wrestle with this idea of what they might need to do in the classroom? Yeah, that's a a great question.
2: And just equally as important, I think I encourage my students, my pre-service students to do the work of unpacking who they are before anything. You know, I think it's important That they have an understanding of all of the different biases that we possess naturally as human beings, inhaling the fog, you know, on this earth, and it's harder than it sounds. You know, I I I feel like I've I've been saying this for a while of like, well, you have to do the work, the self reflection, the introspective work of like, what do I believe? Why do I want to do this? And why am I even on this planet? Like, what is my purpose? I think for me, it's, that's the hardest part of just figuring out and sticking to your purpose and also how your experiences in life have or have not aligned to that purpose. And and before you become an educator, I think that that's something that you got to have like a pretty solid grip on. And even still, it's important that you're, that you're forward, and forthcoming with your students about that process too, because I think that they're also looking at you as like a model for a lot of this too and, and to let them know you know like I'm human, I don't have all the answers. That's taking teaching you know to a different space too. because traditionally we're taught that you know as a teacher you impart the knowledge you have all the knowledge, but now I'm trying to teach my candidates like you, you really are there to learn just as much as you are to teach and mm-hmm. I think just, just getting back to your question, I, I really, I just feel like the main message that I want for my candidates to take away from taking my class is like everything that you believe, everything that you do in the classroom, those things are byproducts of your experiences. And so you need to take the time to really unpack those experiences so that you can recreate some of them for your students or so that you can make sure that you don't recreate some of them for your students. I, I, I think part of the piece of like prioritizing relationships with your students is prioritizing a relationship with yourself. You know, Like you have to understand who you are in order to encourage your students to understand who they are and also in order to be able to educate them. Because I I don't feel that students can learn from a teacher who hasn't done that work. Mm -hmm. And maybe they can learn from them, but I also feel that you'll do a lot more harm to students without having done that work too.
1: Joy and I were talking before you got on about different kinds of censorship that happens. And you were speaking straight to the classroom teacher who is really grappling with some uncomfortable spaces. I know as an eighth grade teacher, there were a lot of justifications I would make for allowing or not allowing certain books in the classroom. Well, they're not quite old enough yet. So that self-censorship comes into play. Well, it has a lot of language. There's sexual content. Are they ready for it? Maybe that belongs in the high school or in the public library, not necessarily in my classroom library. So I'm making these justifications, but then there are other types of censorship or decisions that we make as teachers. Okay, these are books that are good for those individuals that we might recommend to the individual students. Maybe these are appropriate for literature circles. These are the safe ones. These are the ones I can teach as a whole class and not get into any trouble or not get too much pushback. I can still ask those critical questions, but I still am on a safe side of the line I mean, what do you say to that? I mean, I know we all wrestle with this. Have you? So what do we say
2: to just sort of like doing the right thing and doing what's socially acceptable?
1: Oh, isn't there, isn't that such a good question about what is the right thing versus socially acceptable? And where do those lines cross? And where do we bump up against them? I think listening
2: to you speak, I, I just thought about, my earliest years as a teacher, and you—you you really don't know what you don't know. I, I have some students from my first and second, and maybe even third year of teaching who I always say to, you know, I'm just like, I failed you guys. Like I had no idea that all of these things I was taught were not the best way to reach you. Were not the best way to create like successful, positive outcomes for you all. And I, I think you have teaching is very time consuming. It's also rewarding and fulfilling, and it can be draining. So I say that to say, like, you, you have to find balance between growing yourself. And that means like reading more, joining professional organizations, researching. Sort of like submerging yourself into diverse settings and asking questions. You you have to do that like personal self work continuously as a teacher in order to be able to see like where those connections relate to. I'm sorry, you have to be able to do that personal work as an individual in order to be able to see where those connections relate as a teacher for you and your students. So, in order to be able to create these outcomes for your students and in order to be able to like have like an inclusive classroom. You have to live that life too, and so I, I truly feel like a lot of teachers are towing the line between participating in unjust systems and disrupting and agitating unjust systems because of where they are personally. You know, there's so much conflict within yourself personally that it's it's difficult to just make the decision of like, yeah, I'm I'm going to go to the school and just do something totally different. But if you're if you're developing in your life personally and you have like a solid wrap around what your purpose is, then you know that you're designed to be in that space to agitate. You know that you're designed to be in that space to create new systems that might work as opposed to just participate in something that doesn't work. And that's the thing that really kind of gets to me, participating in in things that we know aren't successful or traditionally haven't been successful because that's all we know. So instead of saying you know that's all I know we have to sort of take the initiative to know something different, so we can do something different.
0: We are talking to Camille August professional educator and faculty for pre service teachers, and we're talking about book banning and the implications of that. So I'm going to throw out a real hard one. This is not a softball. Okay, and so and Camille and Amy, you can discuss this. I'm, I'm a social study, say I'm a social studies teacher, fifth grade, probably third grade. I'm talking about community. And so they still have community as part of their curriculum. Mm-hmm. And so the topic is community. And I have this choice of reading a book about community that has two males as parents. So the book might be about going to the post office and doing these things and interacting with people in the community, but it just happens to be two males mm-hmm. have a kid. So am I, if I choose this, am I pushing that agenda or am I teaching respect that this is a normal part of our society? And so therefore... Since it's normal part of our society and being objective about that, do I expose my students so that there's a level of respect that this is a member of our society and make them knowledgeable or am I pushing the agenda? I have so many thoughts. (laughs) Come on on safe, Amy.
2: (laughs) I can speak, Amy, if you're still thinking.
1: Oh, go ahead.
2: Okay. I just, the first question that comes to mind is when, when, and how did we get to this point of not trusting the teacher to implement and design a lesson that would yield fruit for your child? Just the the sake of questioning the teacher's choice and materials. I, I feel like that lack of trust is an issue. And I definitely believe that parents should have say so. You know, parents should be able to advocate for their children. In a lot of instances, parents can become blockages for their children too. But I I think that as a parent, you have the right to be able to advocate for your children. And I also believe that just like it's important for pre-service candidates to prioritize building relationships with students, they should also prioritize just building the relationship between their classroom community and the other communities that their students are a part of. And and that's the community that the school is in. That's the community that they live in, in, in their home. I say all that to say teaching, whether or not you choose to teach something, if you choose to teach it, if you choose not to teach it, you're still acting, you're still making a choice, you're still pushing an agenda, regardless of if you choose to teach that text or not. So if you supplement that text with a, another text about community where there's a mom and a dad and they're together as the parent. I, I think that's more inclusive and that's, that's better for students to have like a well-rounded understanding as opposed to parents or community members being concerned that a teacher is pushing a particular agenda. Because in my eyes, we're as teachers, we're pushing agendas anyway, you know, like that. To me, that's part of our job and to sort of like shy away from that is not real it's not true like you just have to be honest with the fact of it is my job to expose your child to some things and it's your job to expose your child to some things it's both of our jobs to work together around what we're exposing your child to how we're facilitating those conversations and when we're exposing your child to that like the exposure I was exposed to so many things that my my teacher exposed me to so many things that my parents didn't. And I'm not saying that in a sense of like, you know, I had no idea that same-sex relationships existed, but I'm saying that my parents could only give me what they had, which which wasn't much compared to what my teachers had. My teachers had something to offer that my parents didn't have to offer. And it just made me, like I said, a more well-rounded individual, I have a better understanding of diversity and acceptance. And I, I, I don't feel, I feel strongly about choosing to completely just omit something from the curriculum because you just don't want to expose the
1: child to it. I love what you said about the exposure and what a teacher's job is. It's, it is different than being the parent. It is our role to expose children to a wealth of knowledge out there. I mean, once someone chooses a career, whether it's their caretakers or the teachers in the classroom, we have our niche knowledge and we can't expect any one person to expose or to introduce children to the world as a whole. Yeah. That's why we have so many people in their lives. And I want to push a little further about the role of parents in supporting the curriculum. I know that it's quite possibly the the loudest voices that sound like people are disagreeing with what teachers are doing in the classroom. But recent surveys have indicated that parents are largely in support of what their students are doing in the classroom Mm and supportive of schools in general. What are your thoughts about the role of parents? From
2: my, my recent experiences, I'm finding that the understanding around like the role that I'll speak to like Black families and Black parents and the role that they play in schools. I think that in my recent experience, A lot of my pre service teachers, or even just like some of the cooperating teachers, assume that parents don't care or parents aren't involved. And that's not true. I know that education is like the key to liberation for a lot of Black families. And so, education is is oftentimes the only priority that Black moms and dads put on their children. Like, all you have to do is do well in school and everything else will fall into place. But where the disconnect comes is when teachers don't prioritize understanding where that family is coming from and how that family does education. You know, the way that you do school or the way that you've been taught to do school may not align to the way that they've been taught to do school. But to assume parents aren't involved or parents don't care, I think that's a a very harmful and false assumption. And I say it's harmful because you may not know that you've made this assumption. You have a student with an F and you have not tried to reach out to the parent about the student with an F because subconsciously you have decided this student, oh, he or she doesn't have support at home or, you know, the parents, the phone number is always changed. So not even going to call, you know, so I think The role that parents play is is a very, I think it's a partnership. Like I was saying that the parents and the teachers have to be in partnership. And I also feel like parents have to educate themselves as well. A lot of times parents are defeated by school systems that aren't including them. And so parents decide like, I'm sort of, I I don't know what to say or do in this situation. I may not agree with what's happening, but I know that this is the teacher. I know that this is the school I'm going to trust that this organization has a system that works. And I, I, so I say that to encourage, particularly Black families to educate themselves, to ask questions, to advocate, to insert themselves, because there are these assumptions floating around that parents don't care or parents aren't involved when it's just like parents are genuinely confused and stressed out. And we, we gotta learn to communicate, you know, parents have to communicate the teacher language, teachers have to communicate in the parent language.
0: All right. And speaking of parents and socioeconomics, there's certainly a difference in what parents and students have exposure to and access to. And so I worry about in this book banning what parents and low socioeconomic status, what they can access. And oftentimes they can't, may not be able to afford certain books or even go to the library. So I am concerned about those who can, can still get access. And those that can't, will not have that access. And I was thinking about what you said about what you've learned from the multitude of your teachers that your parents couldn't expose you to. So how does the choice in books benefit a diverse classroom?
2: Well, a diverse choice in books, I feel like, can benefit a classroom in a number of ways. One, it it can show students what a community looks like. To be able to have students immerse themselves in texts that they enjoy, or maybe they didn't enjoy, but for them to be able to share those experiences with that text with one another I think creates a community that's a community of learners and students who are having conversations around like the different worlds that are present in the text that they're reading. I think it also helps like diverse texts help students see possibilities for themselves. If I am growing up in a neighborhood that is just dirty and I'm, I'm, you know, commuting to school and the environment is not one that's welcoming or, you know, there's broken glass on the street and stuff like that. How, how are students supposed to see anything else if they're not allowed to read, you know, certain texts that they might be able to get inspiration from or see, you know, like, okay, this character is from a similar background that I'm from or lives in a similar neighborhood that I live in and their outcomes are different. So I, I think that having diverse books helps create community in the classroom for the sake of like conversations around what students have read. It also helps students get a better understanding of who they are, who what sort of values they want to align themselves to. And I think diverse book books and the options in selection and, and choices bring about students being able to think critically about the world around them, problem solving skills, are going to be greater if students are allowed to explore different texts. I just don't see by us being so rigid, prescriptive with like what students can and can't read. We're not really, we're not encouraging critical thinking. We're not encouraging inquiry. We're not encouraging problem solving. All of those things get lost and we're not developing the citizens of the world that we all want to exist in as we get older. So you're, you're cutting out a lot of success when you cut out the options for what, what students can engage in as far as the texts
1: that they can read? I think helping students think critically is key there. If we are limiting what their engagement is with the books, how can we have these critical conversations, at least guide them in understanding and how to ask those questions when unsupervised, they might have access to YouTube, TikTok, other types of news outlets or videos that we can't engage in. We can't have those critical conversations. But in the classroom, we can. So mm-hmm. when we are taking those books out or limiting those conversations, we're really, it's like taking a leg off of the stool and We're really crippling our children, and for some students, it's more than it's like taking a a piece of hope away.
2: Because you know, looking at it from my perspective, and just thinking about how there—it was a teacher in my life that inspired me to become a teacher, that inspired me to be a writer, that inspired me to be a reader. You know, a thinker. And so, from my perspective, that gave me hope—the fact that my teacher saw something in me. And she fed the genius that she saw in me. And you're not feeding your students genius if you're worried about, you know, controlling what they're reading. And so I I think that you take away some of their hope for a better life, hope for, like I said, different possibilities and outcomes when you take away like diversity in in books and the curriculum in general.
0: Right, so when we... Speaking of curriculum, we are currently aligning the new culturally responsive teaching and leading standards into all of our uh, pre-service educator programs, not just teaching, but also the support personnel like school counseling and administration uh, programs, such as principal and superintendent. So how do we infuse culturally responsive teaching and leading standards at a time where books are being banned? Dr. Joy, that's a good question. (laughs) You know, because we rely so much on the books that students have access to that we can read to help infuse cultural responsive teaching and responsiveness.
1: Yeah,
2: I was listening to Amy speak a second ago and I was just thinking like a variety of books or just diversity in text allows for a neutral, I guess, guinea pig, you know, like the character and the setting in the book is neutral. It's not necessarily anyone in the classroom or anyone close to any of your students. It it gives you like the the safe space to sort of examine whatever the character is experiencing or whatever is happening in the book without making it too personal. But your to your question of, you know, how to infuse the new culturally responsive teaching and leading standards when we have so much going on around us, I think we have to be cautious of making sure we're not just checking boxes. You know, we're not just saying like, oh, hit that standard. in considering like the context of the laws that are being passed and and the culturally responsive teaching and leading standards, you you can't implement the standards with fidelity if you also align yourself to the book banning. And I I think that that is a clear discrepancy for me. And, And you have to make sure that you're not saying that you're doing something just for the sake of saying that you're doing it, which again goes back to like your why and and your purpose you know like why are you here are you here to just say like I did the lesson plan or you know I I touched on this particular standard or are you here to like make an impact to help students draw connections and become better people in the world and you're gonna have to weigh that out and then also weigh out the implications or potential consequences of standing in what you decide if you decide this is my purpose and I do want to implement the standards and I want to actually implement them with fidelity, then you have to understand that there may be some repercussions for that and you just have to stand firm in it.
0: right. I like what you said about checking the boxes. I'm part of Illinois State Board of Education, the licensure board, and part of my responsibility, our responsibility is to review new curriculum. For Illinois, anytime there's a new preparation program examining the culturally responsive teaching and leading standards. And the last curriculum that I read, I did not give favorable reviews because it was basically we already do this, we already do this, we already do this. That's not how we implement something new, it's really taking a hard look at what we're currently doing and we wouldn't be where we are now if we were all already doing it right so it's not yes. a matter of just checking the boxes and say oh we already do this why well, do this in this class we covered this I cover all these standards in this class and we've heard that right Amy we heard it at a meeting a couple of weeks ago we do all these things already well then we wouldn't be here where we are so no it's a matter of that self-reflection and being a reflective practitioner, going back and say, I can do better. My father used to tell me the biggest room in the house is the room of improvement. So we can all do better, right? And so this is an opportunity for us to really push ourselves, to look at our curriculum, look at it in alignment to our, who we admit, who we graduate. Who retain and graduate, and the impact that they're having on students. So we're actually looking forward to an opportunity of change and improvement.
2: Yes. And to your point of just like feeling like we already do that—that's some of my frustration, you know, with my pre-service candidates. is just, and that's why it's so important to just prioritize like that self-work, so that you, you're you're you've let down enough walls and you're vulnerable, but safe enough to sort of take a reflective look at what's being proposed and what you've been doing and to see not only are you doing it, but are you believing it? Are you living it? Are you, are you modeling it? Are you, it's more than just doing it. And I don't necessarily know how to evaluate the beliefs of pre-service teachers, but I do think that there, I see a lot of box checking, if that's what we could call it. <laughs> A lot of candidates saying, you know, like, I'm, I'm capable of saying that I believe in an anti-racist education, or I'm, I'm capable of saying that I want to welcome diverse students. But is that what you believe? Do your actions align to, to what you're able to say to me or what you're able to check off and
1: say that you've done? You've given us some really good things to think about. And That it is that self-growth and really starting with where our hearts are, what we believe. Are there any other points of action that you can leave us with today? I love the word agitate. So how can we be better and how can we better prepare pre-service teachers to to be those, there we say, agitators?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think moving from knowing to doing is, is very important. A lot of us know what's wrong. A lot of us know what not to do and a lot of us know what to do. I think we have to do at this point point. and doing looks different in a lot of different settings but just to provide an example, when you're on Zoom and, and this is often my experience, on Zoom, having a meeting with an organization and if there's something that happens or there's an instance where something doesn't rub you right, you should say something. You know, i I feel like that's the first place where we can start. We can start to have conversations that may feel uncomfortable. We can start to bring up topics that we know we don't feel comfortable discussing and see where it goes. I, I think shying away from stuff isn't. Going to benefit us anymore, especially with the way things have sort of been revealed to the world over the last couple of years. And so now that it's out there, I think that we've got to, you know, grab it and wrestle with it with each other. And when I say each other, I'm, I mean like different people. Like you have to change your circles, you have to change your conversations. It, it's time to grow in a sense of understanding yourself and those around you.
1: Well, talking to you today has helped us grow. And I know our listeners will grow too. I look Thank forward you. to having another conversation with you. Yes, because, because we're not done. We have so much to talk about. <laughs> I would love to speak with you, ladies, again. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory Versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson.
0: We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching.
1: We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory
0: or practice win the match?
1: I think it was theory probably this time.
0: Uh, Practice.
1: Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.